I'm Yanil, and I'll be reading the scripture. We'll be in Exodus 33, starting from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Neil. Good morning, Rogers Park. My name is Phil Adams. I get to serve. It's a privilege. It's one of the, on the pastoral team here in our Rogers Park network. And this morning, I'll be bringing God's word to you. Let's pray before we jump in and lean and receive from the word of God. God, we thank you. God, for your word, God, that you have revealed yourself and shown yourself to be truth, God, that we can grind ourselves on, God. So I pray today that you will speak into our hearts, into our minds, God. Encourage us. May we hear from you. May we leave experiencing you, knowing a little bit more about who you are, God. So God, we come with expectancy to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As Lee mentioned, this is the final sermon in our series where we've been working through the book of Exodus. There's expectation with that. It's the final one. We got there. And then next week, we're going to have an open topic. The week over that, we'll do something else, Vision Sunday. And after that, as you've seen, we'll be in the book of Romans where we're going to be heavily looking at the, the gospel. The, the deep theological basis and understanding that Paul gives us of the gospel. And we're excited about that. But this week... Like I said, we're still in Exodus. If you're here and you just came for the first time and you're thinking, okay, we're at the very end of something, don't worry, you'll be able to follow everything that I say with just this sermon today. We're going to flow directly from the passage that we read and, and thought about last week. So last week's passage was Exodus chapter 32, and Exodus chapter 32 kind of ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. The story is kind of incomplete, and then we pick up on with it this week, but some big questions are still left from the, the story that, that happened last week, and we got to understand that to make sense of the tension that happens in this week's passage in chapter 33 that Anil read. Israel's future is not looking so good. The Israelites, they've been freed from Egypt, they've traveled through the, the wilderness. They're being formed into a nation, into a people. They are on their way to the promised land, a land that God has promised to take them to, a land where that flows with milk and honey. I always think of honey Cheerios when I read that. I don't know why. But right now, they have, they have not arrived yet. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He is receiving the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, which will be the ethical foundation for the people of Israel. It will be like their constitution. God is giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, the home of God. Also that God will be able to dwell and live in the midst of his people. Moses is literally receiving the next steps that would bring God closer to his people. Remember, Exodus is about relationship, relationship between God and his people. And so on Mount Sinai, Moses is receiving the next steps in forming this relationship. Meanwhile, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, because Moses has taken a little bit too long, the Israelites started to get a little bit antsy. And they, they say to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and we looked at this last week. They said, Aaron, up, make us gods that will go before us. Moses is gone. I don't think he's coming back. 
He's the one who has mediated between us and God. He's the one that God used to get us out of Egypt. He's the one that God used to get us through the wilderness. If he's gone, we're going to have to sort out our own relationship with God. So as we know, they take all of the gold that they have, and Aaron makes a golden calf. God is up here on the mountain with Moses. And down here, Aaron and the Israelites are getting everything twisted in their minds. They are merging their own ideas about God. They're forming him into something that makes sense to them, claiming that their creation is who brought them out of Egypt, all while God is actually up here asking, what are you doing? Is that animal meant to be me? And then Aaron says, tomorrow we're going to make a feast to the Lord or our our idea of the Lord. And then we're going to bring peace offerings to this calf. We're going to have other um, burnt offerings that are going to give to this calf. And then the people are going to sit down and they're going to eat, it says, and drink and play, which has connotations of a, a way of getting closer to God through sexual license and celebration. So what's going on here? What's going on is that life has become uncertain. It didn't feel to the Israelites that things were going to plan. Moses was taking too long. And the the Israelites began to wonder, aren't we meant to be on our way to the promised land by now? And this moment in the, in the life of Israel is very relatable. Because what happens is, in the confusion and doubt, in wondering where Moses is and why he is taking so long, the Israelites lose trust in God. They lose their focus on God. When God doesn't take them where they want to go, when they want to go there... They lose trust in him. Plans in our lives can be like weights that pull on us like gravity, drawing us towards a certain end. We feel the pull towards getting married. We feel the pull towards a certain job or a certain career. We feel the, the pull towards a certain ministry. We feel the pull towards a certain place. We feel the pull towards a certain house. We feel the pull towards stability and comfort. We feel the pull towards success. We feel the pull towards clarity and making sense of the world. The Israelites felt the pull towards the promised land, towards milk and honey. But what do we do when we feel the pull, but we aren't moving? We, we see it, it's there, but we're here. God, this is a good desire. This is a good plan. You say, he that desireth the spouse desireth a good thing. You say, he who desires leadership desires a noble task. You've put this ministry on my heart. God, I want more space for my kids. I just want kids. God, I want to know what are you doing? 
I don't think my motivations are impure, but God, what's happening? Aren't we meant to be going somewhere? I'm tired. I'm ready. Why aren't we getting there? Why is there no movement? How long are we going to be camped out here in uncertainty? Come on. We need to get going with the plan. This is taking too long. And so Israel, feeling the pull of their desire to get to the promised land, they ask, well, how do the surrounding nations, how do they get what they want? When they want good crops or they want good weather, if they wanted to get to the promised land, well, what would they do? Because God's not working. If they wanted a spouse, if they wanted a job, if they wanted a bigger house, if they wanted leadership, if they wanted clarity from God, what would they do? The idea of worshiping a golden calf, the idea of expressing worship through eating and drinking and playing, these ideas, they came from Egypt and the surrounding nations. Israel got these ideas about the, the, from the precise nations God was setting them apart from, for the sake of displaying true worship of the one true God. So now because they are feeling the pull towards their plans stronger than their pull towards God, they begin to reduce God and shrink him to fit their plans. God doesn't actually say, I don't think that I shouldn't date non-Christians. God uses sinners all through the Bible. Does it really matter if I bully and intimidate to get ahead at work? Is that not just pragmatic? God desires good things for me, and that's all I need to think about on Amazon.com. God is everywhere. It doesn't matter where I live. And out pops a golden calf. We say we are worshiping God, but actually it's a God molded to our liking. A God molded, sharp edges cut off to allow us to get where we want to go. And this happens when we feel the pull towards our plans stronger than we feel, feel the pull towards God himself. The problem is that when we do this, when Israel did this, they belittled God, they misrepresented God, and they broke their commitment to God. By shaping God as a calf, they were saying God is something he's not, and they were not saying everything that he is. They were saying, we don't want you for who you are. We want a God that is a vehicle, and we want to be in the driving seat. We want the promised land, and whatever will get us there is fine. Iron, make us gods that will go before us, as long as we, they get us there. So God says this to Moses, I've seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, meaning stubborn, stubborn in their sin. And then God says to Moses, now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might, that I might make a great nation of you, Moses. God is saying, I'm going to press reset. 
He's going to start again with a new people. And we think, what? Reset? But remember, Israel is to be a kingdom of priests with a purpose, with the purpose of reflecting, representing God to the surrounding nations. And now Israel are mimicking the surrounding nations. They are not representing God. They are misrepresenting. They are not magnifying God. They are belittling God. They are not committed to a God. They are committed to the promised land. And they have become a kingdom of priests to a God of their own making, not the true God. So God stays committed to his plan of creating a kingdom of priests who will reveal him to the world. But this time he says, Moses, I'm going to start again. But I'm going to start again with you and your family. But Moses steps in from verses 11 to 13, and he pleads with God to not wipe out the Israelites. Don't reset. Don't start again. And Moses' argument is based on God's commitment to God's plan. Moses points out three reasons why God should not wipe out Israel. Number one, he points out what God has already done for Israel. They've never been perfect, but God, you rescued us from Egypt. God, it's always been grace. Number two, he asks, what will this communicate to Egypt? What, what will they think of who you are if they hear you wiped out Israel? What will us being consumed, what will that communicate? Number three, Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham. God, did you not make a promise? You promised Abraham that you would multiply his offspring as the stars of the heaven. And you would give them their own land forever. He said three things. God, it's always been grace. What is this going to communicate to the surrounding nations if you wipe us out? And God, didn't you make a promise? God, didn't you make a promise? And then in verse 14, God relented. It says, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. But if we keep reading through the rest of chapter 32, we see there's this tension or this dance that kind of seems to be going on where, yes, God relents from wiping them out. But then later on in chapter 32, we see that, that God killed 3,000 men. And then in chapter 32, verse 35, God sends a plague on the people. It's like, God, have you relented? And then we get to chapter 33, which is our passage for today. And God says to Moses, chapter 33, verse 1, Depart, go, go up from here, you and the people who have come, that I have brought out of Egypt, and go to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go to the promised land. Remember that Israel's story is the story of God promising to one man, Abraham, that he is going to make his family a great nation. This is a recap over the last series. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, more numerous than the stars, who would be a blessing to the world. You will have your own land. And he promised that to Abraham. Then the book of Exodus starts with this family, Abraham's family, about just about 70 people, 70 families, and then they grow in Egypt under slavery into a couple of million people. And now God has freed them from there, and they're on their way to this land, on their way to the promised land. 
that generations ago God had promised they would have. And now after this golden calf instant, God is saying, keep going to the promised land. You can have it. You can, you can have what you want. Verse 2, chapter 33, God says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go, I'll send an angel before you to protect you, to get you there, to get you your land. When they ask Aaron to make gods to go before them in chapter 32 verse 1 it's the same word that God uses when he says fine I will send an angel before you you asked for one here's one that'll go before you verse 3 go up to a land flowing with milk milk and honey you can have it you can have what you want but then God says but I will not be there but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. You can have your land. You can have an angel to protect you. You can have milk and honey. You can have your lives. You get freedom. You get safety. You get security. You get good food. Just not me. Let me show you the tricky spot that Israel have got themselves in. Since it's the final week in Exodus, let's go back a little bit again to the beginning. When we started Exodus, Israel desperately needed a God that cared. They needed a God who would see their slavery in Egypt. They were counting on the fact that God would not be indifferent to their pain, to their suffering. They needed a God who would see and feel something. They needed a God who would have an opinion on injustice. And we started this series, we looked at chapter 2 where it says, God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And we said that this was a conclusion of the introduction of God getting all of his people in place. And it's the same as God saying, God looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. The introduction of Exodus ends with this hopeful expectation that God is going to act, and he does. In chapter 3, God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cries because of the taskmasters, because of slavery. I've seen their pain. Then chapter 6, we keep going through Exodus. God shows us and promises exactly what he's going to do. He says to Moses, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God. Then we see this continued forming of relationship between God and his people. God reveals his powers. He provides for them. He reveals his character in the law. They enter into a covenant relationship with each other. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. A statement of affection and commitment. Then we have the tabernacle where God is moving in to live with amongst the Israelites. And then there's a delay. God takes too long with Moses on the mountain. God isn't working to the timeline of the Israelites. But they've somewhere to get to. They have a plan pulling on them like a weight like gravity. They want the promised land. 
So they shrink God down to the size of a golden calf, a size that they can control and steer. Why? Because at some point, they became more interested in what God could do for them than they were interested in God himself. God had become a means to an end, not the end. What was meant to be, a, was meant to be relational had become transactional. They had become more devoted to their plan than devoted to God. Maybe there was a time when God was big enough, when his pull of gravity was strong enough. God, I will go anywhere. God, I will do anything for you as long as I am with you. But maybe we have got distracted with spouses and houses and kids and cars. When did the weight of this world get so heavy? We feel the pull towards comfort and security and clarity. And the only way we can get there with a clean conscience is if we take some of God's sharp edges, if we shrink him down a little bit, make him a little bit more manageable so he fits where we want to fit him. The problem is that when we reduce God down to size to fit our plans, we aren't left with God anymore. We're left with someone else. And God's over here saying, is that idol you're worshiping meant to be me? When we get to verse 7 of chapter 33, we see the focus shifts entirely onto Moses. The Israelites are kind of laughed out a little bit. Moses, once again, he gets on his knees to plead the case for his people. He's done it before. He's doing it again. Verse 7 to 11, they show, it shows us how this happened. They build a tent. A tent, and they, 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 the passage emphasizes that they take this tent and they build it outside the camp because God's presence is not with his people. And then verse 8 says that when Moses went into this tent outside the camp to meet with God, all the people would stand at their own homes, their own tents, and watch. What's happening? Do you feel the anticipation? What's going to happen? This is our last week in Exodus. What's going to happen? And then we get down to verse 12, and we get to see the conversation that Moses has with God. Verse 12, chapter 33. And in verse, 20, verse 12, we already begin to see the clues as to how Moses responds differently to God than the rest of the Israelites have. Verse 12 says, Moses says to God, See, you say to me, bring up this people to the promised land, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses is saying, you've told me to lead the people to the promised land, but you haven't told me who you will send with me. And at first glance, this is kind of redundant. Moses, have you been listening? Moses, God has told you in verse 30, chapter 33, verse 2, he tells you he's going to send an angel before you. I'm not asking who's going to go before us. I'm not asking who's going to get us there. I'm not asking who will fulfill the plan. 
I'm not asking who will go ahead and provide comfort and security and clarity and good food. Look at my words. I'm asking who's going with us on the journey. Moses asked God, who's going with them, not before them, with them. Moses shifts the conversation away from getting the promised land, and he shifts it back to getting God. Verse 13, Moses says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Do you see what Moses desires? Do you see what Moses wants? God, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. I want to know your ways. How can we get you to come with us? And then Moses says, consider too that this nation's your people. God, you committed to us. I know we've broken our end of the deal. But you committed to us as well. And then God responds in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God is saying what he said back in chapter 32, verse 14, just after they worshiped the calf, God said to Moses, Moses, I'll work with you, I'll go with you. But Moses replies, and we see his reply clearly, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. God, we're a package. Me and my people. Whatever happens, we're going to share the same fate together. Moses' statement, it doesn't just signify Moses' commitment to stand with the Israelites. Moses makes a daring plea. He lays their lives on the line. If you won't go anywhere with us, don't send us anywhere. We're going to stay here in the desert. Don't make us move without you, God. You can give us the promised land. You can give us security. You can give us safety. You can give us milk and honey. But don't give us that without giving us you. And then Moses makes his final plea, verse 16. He asks two questions which, which emphasize one main idea. He says, if you don't come with us, how will it be known that your people and I have found favor in your sight? Is it not in your going with us that we're distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? What Moses is saying is, how will the surrounding nations see your kindness and your grace if you aren't with us? Moses points at God's own plan to reveal himself through Israel. And Moses points at God's own promises, that he promised to do it. Then verse 17, God says, okay. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by, my, by name. Moses' whole argument from when he entered that tent with the Israelites watching, wondering, his whole, whole argument was to say, God, I believe it's all about you. It's about us being with you. And it's about the world seeing you. I see that, God. You're the end. You're not the means to an end. 
relationship with you is the end. And then these words seem to just flow, gosh, out of Moses' mouth. I love these words. He says, God, please show me your glory. What's he asking? The Hebrew word for glory means weight. The glory of God is like a weight that's got pull, like gravity. And Moses says, let me see it. God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, but you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. God is saying, if I stand before you, the pull will pull you to pieces. Rogers Park, plans in our lives can be like weights. They can pull us like gravity, drawing us towards a certain end. We feel the pull towards getting married. We feel the pull towards a certain job or a certain career. We feel the pull towards a certain ministry, a certain place, a certain house, towards stability and comfort. We feel the pull towards success. We feel the pull towards clarity and making sense of the world. The Israelites felt the pull towards the promised land. And we can let these pulls become more important than our relationship with God. We don't maybe reject God entirely or even knowingly. We just shrink him to get us where we want to go. But Moses knows that if he and the Israelites are going to keep their eyes fixed on God, they need to know the pull of God. They need to know the weight of God, the glory of God. If they are going to, if they are going to orbit around God, they need to get within his gravi gravitational pull. God, please show me your glory. So what happens? God says, behold, there is a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face you shall not see. God is saying he's going to pass by Moses and while he's passing him by, he's going to put his hand over Moses and when he lifts his hand, Moses will be able to see God's back. But when God says you will see my back, it's a Hebrew idiom that just means you'll see next to nothing. Then if we keep reading, we see this incident actually take place. But it's different. It's different because the way it's recorded first is not Moses. The way it's actually recorded is not Moses seeing something, but hearing something. Exodus 34 verse 5, this is it. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth generation, which means God will continually punish each generation if they keep continuing to sin. So we are waiting for the glory of God to pass by. I'm not sure if we had this paragraph in mind. No flashing lights. No smoke machines. No pyrotechnics. Disneyland, end of the day. The glory of God. In God revealing his glory, the way he chooses to do it is he basically says, I am love and I am just. I am love and I am just. Let me try and explain this. When we started Exodus weeks ago, Israel desperately needed a God that cared. They needed a God who would see their slavery in Egypt, a God who would see their blisters and their pain, a God who would see and feel something. They, would, they needed a God who would have an opinion on injustice. And God did. God heard, God saw, God remembered, God knew, God acted. He brought justice on Egypt and he set them free. That's the celebration that we always remember in Exodus, in this book. It's the bit we make movies about. That's the triumph that we remember. God frees Israel from injustice and slavery in Egypt. God brings justice. The problem is, by the end of the book, now Israel's become Egypt. Now Israel, in worshiping the golden calf, Israel has started to become Egypt. They've mimicked Egypt. They've copied Egypt. They're becoming like Egypt. They've asked, when Egypt, what does Egypt do when they want crops? What do they do when they want good weather? What do they do? What would they do to get to the promised land? What would they do? No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what's happening. God is love. He said he's going to go with them. You can forget about all of that. He's forgiven them already. He's compassionate. Look at the first bit. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yeah, but he's just. Yeah, but he's love. He's just. No, he's love. He's just. No, he's love. In the following chapters until the end of the book of Exodus, Israel go ahead and they, they build the tabernacle. There's kind of a chunk of chapters there that take us to the end. And what's happening is at the beginning they were receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and the, the, the priest's garments. And then we have these chapters where they actually go and they build the tabernacle. They make the priest's garments. That's what takes us to the end. They're making the home where God is going to live with his people. And then we get the final verses of the book of Exodus. God said he'd go with them. Chapter 40, verse 34, the very last part of the book. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 38, last verse in Exodus, end of series. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel through all their journeys. God went with them on all their journeys. Remember Moses. I'm not asking who's going to go before us. I'm not asking who will go ahead and provide comfort and security and clarity and good food. Look at my words, Moses said. I'm asking who's going with us on the journey. We usually talk about movies happening, having happy endings. But if you think about it, most happy endings in movies are actually happy beginnings. A couple beginning their lives together is the happy ending. It's a beginning. And that's how Moses ends. Exodus is pointing forward to a journey with God. God going with his people. But there's still one lingering question at the end. What about justice? Would God be perfectly just if he just ignored Israel's idolatry? No. So when he relented from consuming them, what did he do with the punishment that they deserved? He kept it. He held on to it. Until God would reveal his glory again. But this time, God wouldn't show his back. This time, God would show his face. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. We see the weight of God. We see perfect justice in Christ being punished for the sins of the world on the cross. We see perfect love in Christ laying down his life on our behalf. We see perfect justice in God forsaking Christ on the cross instead of us. And we see perfect love in Christ willingly being rejected by God in our place. We see perfect justice in Christ bearing our shame. And we see perfect love in Christ clothing us in his righteousness. We see perfect justice in Christ leaving his home. We see perfect love in Christ preparing us a home. That's the glory that God was pointing Moses to. The glory of the cross. Today you're going to see next to nothing, but when you see Jesus, you will see my face. Then chapter 34, verse 8, Moses quickly bows his head towards the earth and worshipped. Rogers Park, sometimes God is going to take a little longer than you'd like. The same way the Israelites felt when Moses was up on the mountain with God, sometimes he's going to take a little longer with the spouse. He's going to take a little longer with the job or the ministry or the explanation for why something happened. Or we are going to feel the pull to become more interested in what God could do for us than we are in God himself. We are going to feel the pull to not trust him and to change who he is to fit our demands. 
but I have circled around one big idea and used a lot of words and taken up some of your time to very simply remind you that God is not a means to an end. He is just the end. Knowing him, being with him, seeing him. And in Christ, through the glory of the cross, we have him. He's with us even now. There's still more to come, but now it's trust him. It's enough. He's enough. Clarity is not always going to be his priority. It's hard to squeeze the infinite into the finite, but he's love. He's just. He's present. I was talking to Lee and Ed Crawl the other day, and I was saying sometimes I struggle with doubts about God. Where is he? What's he doing? Am I barking up the wrong tree? But then I said to them, this book is not human. This book is miraculous. This book is glory. Rogers Park, are you reading it? Sunday sermons can't give you what a life in this book can give you. Sunday sermons can't even get close. And if you're not reading God's word, the gravity of the world is going to pull you out of orbit. Make a commitment today. As we go into communion in a moment, sort it out. Make time every day. Read it, read it, read it, read it. Get confused, get lost. Keep reading it and reading it and reading it and it will become clearer and clearer and clearer. Allow the word of God to seep into your mind and into your soul. And then drop me an email when you see the glory. Let's pray. God, we come before you. God, we want to worship you. God, we want to know who you are in all of your justice and in all of your love because that is what we need. We need your love every day. And God, we need your justice every day. So God, we thank you for your word where we can find you, where we can see you, where you reveal yourself to us, God, where we can see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.